Amen. So we're in James chapter 5 today. Uh, there's a, a literary convention called In Media Res. Those like three English majors out there today, uh, you can follow along. You know what I'm talking about. In Media Res is when you start a story right in the, in the middle of the action. Uh, things have already been going on and the author just drops you in. So at the, in, in the Iliad, uh, Homer begins this story about this epic battle that's been going on amongst the Greeks. And you're already like nine years into the war when he begins from the, from the very first line in media res. It's beginning a story in the middle of the action. Uh, a little bit more lowbrow, closer to home, therefore. Uh, Forrest Gump begins similarly. Forrest is sitting on the park bench talking about life being like a box of chocolates. And then you have these flashbacks to things that have happened in his life before. And uh, today, we're back in the book of James. Uh, we're jumping into the middle of a passage today, and it's one we haven't been in together on a Sunday morning since May of this year. So, in media res, if you will. Uh, if you thought we finished the book of James or just forgot about it, well, surprise. <laughs> uh, and if you're not, uh, if, if you are just joining us, you're not familiar with the book of James, or you just need a quick refresher because it's been a while since we've been studying it together, uh, James is the brother of Jesus, half-brother, that is the son of Joseph and Mary. He was an early leader within the church, and this letter that he wrote here, he writes to Christians who still seem to associate with Judaism in particular. He, he speaks about uh, this kind of uh, dispersion of, of Christians. And this book is probably one of the earliest books in the New Testament. It has a number of signs uh, that would lead us to that conclusion. James follows Jesus' teachings very closely. And we see a, a number of times where James almost quotes Jesus just word for word, straight, straight out of uh, things that we have in the Gospels. Uh, the, the letter is written to a church that's deeply divided, has all sorts of problems within it. And, you know, that's most of the letters in the New Testament, frankly. Um, and one of the things that's causing these divisions is sins of speech. There's all sorts of angry words being spoken, bitterness, uh, harsh and, and hurtful conversations going on. And so James frequently warns the church against sins of speech. He says angry words set the world on fire. They cause all, all the anger and all the problems that we have uh, in our lives. He says they can be traced back to the things that we do with our own words, the sins of our own speech. Destroyed marriages, breakup of families, the end of friendships, all these things come from sins of speech, including the belligerence of nations. Everything from great problems to very personal ones can be traced back to these sort of issues that James addresses repeatedly in his book. And as he discusses the need uh, for Christians to wait patiently in this passage that we're reading, he highlights several sins of speech. So let me read this uh, with you, James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, I'll have the text up here on the screen. James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word. Well, we're jumping into a passage in the midst of, of an ongoing story here in Media Res. We've looked at it before, and we're going to start actually in verse 12 today. We've, we've kind of looked at the past, uh, the verses above that, 7 through 11, briefly back in May of this year. So as we begin, we'll start at the end and then jump back uh, a couple of times to look at some of the things he said in the preceding paragraph. Let me draw your attention to that verse 12 there. Um, maybe this stuck out to you as we were reading. James says, above all, my brothers and sisters. And this phrase sort of draws our attention to it. It's a way of heightening the emphasis on the passage. He wants us to pay attention. And it's interesting because uh, what he says immediately after that, do not swear by, by any of these oaths, by heaven or earth or any other oath, um, may strike us as uh, a bit odd. Like, that was the high point, huh? <laughs> Oaths, that's your biggest concern. Uh, but I think part of what he's doing is he's, he's wrapping up the passage here. This phrase, above all, can be sort of like a concluding phrase. I think what he's doing is he's, he's, he's bringing this paragraph to a close. And so we're on the right path here if we look to con- connect verse 12 with the verses above it. Let me just give a brief roadmap for where we're going today. In verse 12, he does highlight taking oaths, a specific sin of speech to be aware of. And instead, he commands simple honesty. That'll be our first point today. And because he's, he's wrapping up this section, we look back up the paragraph, and we see a very, uh, another sin of speech that's actually addressed similarly in verse 9, grumbling. And in place of grumbling, James encourages these Christians to show patient forbearance. That'll be our second point. And the third point is how these two warnings about speech to avoid connect with the main theme of this paragraph. In what way do uh, um, avoiding oaths and avoiding grumbling have to connect with God's compassion and mercy and patience that he's telling us about here. So these three simple words will guide us as we move through this passage today. Honesty, forbearance, and compassion. So let me begin at the end there, verse 12. Let's look at how James commands simple honesty. This opening command in verse 12, 
Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. That's his, his, his direct command there. And you know, some well-meaning people in the history of the church have read this and said, well, the, the plain meaning of the text as you read it off the face is we don't take oaths. And so they have intentionally avoided um, any government office that they had to take an oath for. Uh, they, they didn't take an oath in court. There are still certain Christian sects today, I think, that are allowed uh, an exception. They don't have to take an oath. Um, they're simply allowed to, to come in without it. And they feel like they're obeying this passage by not taking an oath. Um, and while I understand that uh, it's a sincere reading of the text that they're offering, we have to keep reading uh, this, the rest of this passage in order to understand what the main command here is. Uh, James is warning us against oaths, but he's warning us for a specific reason. It's not simply about taking oaths. Uh, it, it, when we read it in context, we can see that the main point here is really about honesty. He's driving these Christians, encouraging these Christians to be honest in all their dealings. And one thing that will help us is if we compare it with what Jesus taught. Uh, we'll see that both James and Jesus' words, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, point to a, a slightly deeper issue. It's not enough just to avoid oaths. He wants something more. He wants Christians to be known for their honesty. He wants Christians to make a habit of speaking the truth so that that's just what flows out of our mouths naturally. Simple, straightforward honesty. The first way that we know that uh, James isn't just sort of condemning all oaths is because as we look through the rest of the New Testament, there are a number of places where oaths are used. In fact, by the apostles themselves, uh, Paul often calls on God as his witness. Romans chapter 1, for instance, uh, which is a, a form of an oath. Uh, he also placed the Thessalonians under an oath to read the letter that he sent them publicly, 1 Thessalonians 5. And uh, God has also said to use oaths. Uh, in Luke 1, uh, we're told that God used an oath with Abraham. Acts chapter 2, he used an oath with David. And the author of Hebrews brings that out several times in Hebrews chapters 6 and 7, that God used oaths to guarantee what he was saying. Similarly, the Old Testament has a number of commandments that make room for oaths. They, they kind of uh, specify how oaths should be handled when they're made. So it doesn't seem like uh, oaths as a whole are off the table here. The point is really the abuse of oaths. It's the abuse of oaths. We see this as we continue reading in verse 12. James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Again, he's explaining that he wants Christians to reflect the truth, the simple truth in their language. This phrase, this phrase let your yes be yes and your no be no, means something like if you affirm something verbally, then it should be true, absolutely true. And if you deny something verbally, then it, you should only do that when something's absolutely false. We could simplify it even further and say, say what you mean, nothing more and nothing less. 
There are multiple applications, and we'll get to those in just a moment. But before we do, I do want to compare this passage with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 and and Matthew chapter 23. There's a couple of of cross-references here that are really significant for us. So uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, I'm not going to have the text up here. Matthew 5, this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does something sort of similar to what we see James doing here. He says, you've heard it said that uh, if, you, if you make an oath, you should keep it. But I want to drive deeper to the heart of the issue. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Jesus' point here, watch for this as we're working through this, is he doesn't want his followers to use oaths to cover up deception. He doesn't want his followers to use oaths to cover up deception. Matthew 5, starting in verse 33. Jesus speaking here. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This verb swear or sworn here is is the same word that James uses. It just means swearing an oath. It has nothing to do with uh, profanity. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, For it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. A couple of things to notice here. James repeats Jesus' teaching almost word for word in several places here. Did you notice that? He says, don't take an oath by heaven, don't take an oath by earth, don't take an oath by any, or don't take any other oath. It very closely echoes Jesus' teaching. And then in his, the last line of of Jesus' teaching on this, uh, this point here, he says, let your, he says, uh, let what you say be simply yes or no. In the Greek, and some of your translations should reflect this, Jesus says, you should say yes, yes, or no, no. So he repeats that. In, the, in, the, in a way that's really similar to, to the way that James repeats that yes, yes, and no, no. He's driving them to absolute authenticity, honesty in their words. So Jesus is reasoning. This is what we're trying to get at. Why does he want them not to use oaths? First, it's because oaths often abuse holy things in a way that sort of empties them out. Do you see that? That's why he says, don't take an oath by heaven, because heaven is the throne of God. You have no right, human, any of us, to take an oath by God's throne. Don't take an oath by the earth, because it's God's footstool. You don't own it. You didn't make it. You don't maintain it. And so it's not yours to swear by. Jesus is, is warning us not to belittle God's creation or anything that that belongs to God by our oaths. But secondly, he's also calling for a directness of speech. Again, simple honesty. That's what he's after here. He wants them to speak straightforward, speak the truth straightforwardly. We see Jesus give specific examples of these kind of oaths in Matthew 23. Let's let's jump over there. Uh, If you're in Matthew, uh, Jesus... In this passage, Matthew 23, he is uh, confronting religious hypocrisy. He's speaking to the leaders 
of his people, leaders who were greatly respected in their own day. They stood head and shoulders apart. The people looked up to them. And these leaders were, were widely recognized as being the most godly people in the community. And Jesus says they have badly misunderstood because they focus on externals. That's what he does in Matthew 23. The whole chapter, he, he talks about several things there. They've missed the heart of the commandments entirely because they just do these externals. Uh, they, they use the law in a way it's not supposed to be. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23, starting in verse 16. He, he, he again warns them not to use oaths because they're using these oaths in an intentionally deceptive way. Matthew 23, starting in verse 16, Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides. This is a form of oath. He says, You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. That is the oath is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. Again, your oath means nothing. You can, you can disregard it. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, well, then he's bound by the oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Again, we see Jesus' concern for the abuse of oaths. And James's teaching to avoid oaths have a lot of overlap here. The reason that oaths were a problem is because they were intentionally designed to mislead. There's this, uh, there's this, this form, uh, this uh, formality in speaking that has, is sort of broadly recognized. Uh, and there's all these special words, a specific way of stating your oath that if you say it in one way, Everybody sort of knows, well, that's not really an oath. Everybody who knows the code knows that. If you can break the code, then you know, well, there's an escape clause in that oath. And that oath means nothing. And the religious leaders are okaying it. They're saying, that's fine. That oath can be disregarded. But these oaths were used to deceive others intentionally, to pull the wool over people's eyes, to, to mislead them. And for that reason, Jesus says, you can't do this sort of thing where you say that oath obligates you and that oath doesn't. And what Jesus identifies here is a religious hypocrisy that he calls blindness, spiritual blindness. This issue of blindness was a major uh, controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders. In fact, there's several times uh, in the book of John where this controversy uh, fires up and you almost think Jesus is going to be uh, put to the sword immediately uh, because he says, you, religious leaders, are blind. And what I mean to be very specific is you don't know God. You don't know God. In this case, he's calling them blind he says, I know that you're blind. I know that you have this spiritual blindness, no connection with the Father, because you don't care for truth. You don't care for the real issues of the law. You are abusing the law, abusing these oaths. 
for the purpose of maintaining your own power and misleading other people. And again and again, both in the Gospels and in the, the, the rest of the New Testament, we see that falsehood is one of the chief characteristics of our enemy and God's enemy, the devil. He's a liar. He's been lying from the very beginning. And God, on the other hand, cannot tell a lie. Paul writes to Titus, those opening verses there. God is the God of truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He identifies himself with truth. So people who make recourse to lying, to to this sort of deception, they use oaths to mislead others, have no spiritual connection to God. They're lost. They're spiritually blind, Jesus says. They are misled and they mislead others. And they don't know God. But in Christ, we learn to to love the truth, to live in light of accountability, and to avoid the darkness of falsehood. Let me give a couple of brief applications here. Our words should reflect the truth. That's the first thing we see here. When you say something, mean it, very simply. Don't try to twist the truth. Don't try to obscure it. Don't try to cover it. When you're speaking, particularly to your brothers and sisters, but the the command goes beyond that, you may not use words intended to deceive. That's the first application. Our words should reflect truth. And the second is like it. Our actions should align with our words. So if you say, I'm going to do such and such a thing, do it. If you say, I'll be there to help you uh, in this way, you ought to fulfill that unless you have some pressing reason and then you ask uh, for, for, uh, an, for, for an out. But you cannot intentionally deceive. And so what we see is Christianity has created a situation where truth matters. Speaking the truth to one another is very significant. And this comes up in the letters of Paul in particular, both to the Ephesians and to the Colossians. He says, I don't want you to lie to one another anymore. That's the old way. You have moved out of that old way. You live in a new, in a new way. Your words should reflect the truth, and your actions should align with your words. And then James gives this warning. Let me jump back to James chapter 5 now. After, after saying, I don't want you to swear by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's warning them against these abuses of oaths. Then he, he gives the reason why. He says, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So that you may not fall under condemnation. That's a pretty significant threat. God's judgment is coming for those who intentionally mislead others. I, I think white lies are part of what's being, uh, being called out, being identified here. Any sort of intention to, to mislead others, to use our words in a way that obscures the truth. Uh, let me just ask brief, briefly, why might people feel compelled to use an, an oath of this sort? And why does James bring it up here? It does seem a bit obscure. Sure, Jesus is talking to a specific context where this was apparently happening, but can we imagine this is still going on? Well, let me give you just one specific case where this crops up in Scripture. All four of the Gospels record that Peter 
on the day when Jesus was betrayed and tried was under great pressure. People are questioning him. Hey, I think I think I know you. I recognize your accent. You're a Galilean. Don't you follow this guy? And several times he says, three times, he says, no, no, I don't know him at all. And Matthew and Mark both record that he used an oath. He swore by an oath that he didn't know Jesus. Now, what are we to make of this? I think as we look at Peter's situation, we can learn several things. Number one, he was under great pressure. So also are the people here in James 5. James is telling them, I know you're suffering. It requires patience on your part. God's purposes will come to pass in the end, but you must wait patiently. Don't try and sneak out by your own conniving words. In a way, maybe similar to how Peter did. Peter was looking for an escape. He's trying to save his own skin. He knew what's going to happen today is probably going to lead to Jesus's death. That, that day when he was being asked, are you a follower of Jesus? And he denies it over and over. And he knew if I associate myself with this guy, I may receive the same condemnation he does. So situations of great pressure, situations where you're in danger, situations where you, you think, I could probably save my skin if I just sort of told a little white lie here, uh, or if I covered the truth by obscuring it, in the way that perhaps Peter did. You may not use an oath, but you may use some other way of getting around the absolute truth. These are the sort of situations I think James has in mind, and they happen frequently when we feel ourselves to be in danger, when we're anxious and afraid of what might happen. So James is warning the believers here, don't use these falsehoods. I want you to be honest. I want you to be known for your honesty. I want the straightforward speaking of truth, to be a habit among Christians, so much so that people know that. You, you shine like lights in this perverse generation. God doesn't want his people to live in fear, and he doesn't want us to use deceptive ways of speaking. The way that he solves this problem, the way that he leads us to speak the truth, is by reassuring us of his compassion. And that's, in fact, if you just look right above the verse that we're studying, look at verse 11. That's the, the connection that James made here. You know that God is compassionate and merciful. Therefore, above all, don't swear, don't use these falsehoods. Know that God has good purposes for you. That's what he says in verse 11. He says, you've, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job is one of these Guy's a hero in the Old Testament. He stands apart from others because he was a truly righteous man and he suffered terrible things. And in, in Job's case, what we see is that God had a purpose for his suffering. None of the sufferings were an accident. Every one of them was well within God's plan for Job's life. And at the very end, after all these sufferings, God talks to Job. Job meets God face-to-face, if you will. They speak directly. And Job's response at this point, when he has this direct encounter with God, this isn't like, you know, I I think I heard a voice. (laughs) Uh, Job saw God in the whirlwind, and God communicated directly with him in an unmistakable way. And Job's response to God is, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. That is, I knew some things about you. 
before all these sufferings, before all these trials in my life. But now my eyes see you. These extremely painful experiences in Job's life were intended by God to draw him to a personal knowledge of himself. God's purposes in our sufferings are meant to reassure us so that we don't fall back into the old ways, using lies to obscure the truth, trying to solve our own problems by human methods. Instead, brothers and sisters, speak the truth and use honesty. Job is a good example of this as we see the purposes of God in his life. God's purposes are to draw us to himself, to make himself known to us. And so in the midst of our sufferings, when we are anxious and afraid, I don't know how this is going to turn out, and I can find my own escape hatch here. God is reassuring us that his purposes are good, that his intention is to lead us deeper into the knowledge of him so that we would know him more and more personally. And his purposes are good, this is the connection James is making, because he is a compassionate God. And we can trust his compassion to be at work in our lives. So that's the first thing we see here. Secondly, uh, more briefly, I'm going to jump back up now to verse 9 because we see another sin of speech on display here. And I think these two are closely correlated. James encourages these believers to forbearance. He says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Note the similarity between verse 9 and verse 12 that we were just looking at. He begins with a warning about a specific sin of speech that he wants these believers to avoid. And then he follows it immediately with a reminder of God's coming judgment, just like he did in verse 12. Sin of speech to avoid, warning of coming judgment. I think this similarity in phrasing shows us that these two passages are meant to be read together. And James's above all there in verse 12 is meant to kind of draw this whole section together. So we're right to try and put these sins of speech side by side and say, in what ways are these similar? So the command here is do not grumble. And as we work to understand this command, we have to consider the context of this passage again briefly. These Christians are in the midst of some intense situation. We don't know exactly what it is. Apparently there were rich people who were oppressing them. Perhaps these rich people were even members of the church. It's not totally clear the way that James writes about it here. But those people were oppressing the poorer people. And there was, there was no immediate solution to it. James writes to say, I want you to be patient. I know this is hard. There's, there's no immediate solution coming right now. Except I know that God's purposes are good. So please hold on. Please wait. And in the midst of this, don't grumble against your brothers and sisters. We can imagine ourselves in a tight spot. Some community-wide situation puts a strain on all of us. Or maybe something unique to you. A health issue. Some... Uh, loss of income. And in the midst of this strain, under this stress, 
we tend to, our, our words tend to overflow uh, in ways that they didn't before. And as Jesus taught, our words are a direct reflection of our hearts. They don't come from nowhere. They're not an accident. You didn't just get angry and say something, uh, fly off the handle. That's the true you. And when we're in the midst of, of, of pressure, of difficult and intense situations like this, I want you to just imagine, how would you respond? You don't have to imagine. How do you respond when you're in a situation like this? Often our frustrations turn outward toward other people. We can accuse them of being thoughtless about our, our suffering. Sometimes we feel like they are not considering our interests, and so they're intentionally making life more difficult for us. They're adding to our suffering needlessly. When people are under pressure, the spiritual reality of their hearts shines out. It shows who you and I truly are. Think about the last time you had a bad night's sleep and then a morning full of challenges. <laughs> Woe to that driver who cuts you off. Uh, your internet better be working or LA Net's going to hear about it. Uh, if you are on the bus and the other kids are being mean to you, how do you feel like responding to them? These are ways that we diagnose our own hearts. And our natural instinct is to grumble. That's what James is saying. We, our hearts tend towards this direction. We tend to find fault with others. We tend to blame shift. We tend to accuse other people. James spent years with the master counselor. He knows how to draw out these sort of issues, how to help people diagnose their own hearts. Look at the times when you're under stress and listen to the words that follow. So James gives a strict warning here. Don't grumble so that you don't receive judgment because the divine judge is standing at the door. That is, he could appear at any time. If you know anything about the teachings of Jesus, he said he was coming back. That was one of the repeated themes. And the one key clue that he gave about the timing of his return is no one would expect it. It would take everyone by surprise. James is reminding his, his readers, his fellow believers who he loves of this. Please remember, brothers and sisters, the return of Jesus could take place at any moment. It's as if the judge is standing at the door. He is prepared to walk in in the very next moment. And so be circumspect about your own language. Be circumspect about your own grumbling in particular. If you think, why is he so worried about grumbling? <laughs> I mean, there's like dictators in the world right now who are oppressing, oppressing people by the, the, the thousands, the hundred thousands, the millions. Shouldn't the judge be more concerned about that than just grumbling? Well, I would point you to, uh, to the Old Testament. One of the things we see in the Old Testament is that God cares about grumbling. The most significant uh, act of salvation in the Old Testament, the exodus from Egypt, was immediately followed by grumbling from his people so significant that they didn't enter the promised land. They wandered and died because they grumbled against the Lord and against his chosen leaders, against Moses and Aaron and against each other. Grumbling does tend 
to ruin our spirituality. I love, uh, well, let me point out that the <clears throat> we should not underestimate the evil of grumbling. The Old Testament leads us to take it more seriously, to consider with greater sobriety the damage of grumbling and the way that it dishonors the Lord. I love how Paul Tripp says this, the way that grumbling dishonors God. He says, if you embrace the theology of the sovereignty of God, which is just what James is teaching here. He's saying, listen, God's in control. He's got your life. He has a purpose for all this. If you believe that, if you believe that God's in control, then you would have to say that every moment of grumbling in your life is in fact grumbling against God. He stands behind those actions in your life, behind those experiences that you've had. You've never had a neutral grumble in your life, Tripp says. Your grumbling is deeply theological. I think that's profound. And it's a good reminder to us that there is no such thing as a grumble that's directed at no one in particular. Every grumble, every complaint has as its final ultimate aim, a complaint against the Lord. Instead, James encourages the believers here to be patient. I've chosen the word forbearance, which is just another way of saying being patient with difficult people and difficult circumstances. Specifically, James is encouraging these believers not to use words of complaint against one another. He wants us to replace them with words of compassion. He doesn't say that explicitly, but he does talk about the compassion of the Lord, and I think that's where he wants to draw our attention. James uh, doesn't explicitly say that we should speak compassionately, but that's the only rational outcome of someone who knows that the judge of the universe is himself full of compassion. And that's where we're going to end today, this third point here, compassion. God is full of compassion. That's James's uh, language in verse 11 there. I mentioned it briefly a moment ago, uh, but let me just uh, emphasize that. If you have the ESV, it does you a great disservice here. Breaks my heart to say so. I love the ESV. The ESV just says compassion. If you've got the NIV or NASB, it's got a more literal translation. It says that God is full of compassion. He is full of compassion. That's what the Greek says. The word for compassion here means this deep down feeling of concern for someone else. When you see someone hurting and your heart goes out to them, when you have that, that ache of care for someone else, that's what compassion is. And God has that. And what's so amazing about this is that God has that same ache of care and compassion for us in a way that he's actually full of it. He overflows with it. He doesn't have just a small amount of compassion in fact, he overf overflows with this sort of loving care. If you know your Bible, you know in Exodus 34, this is how God described himself. He has an encounter with Moses. Moses says, I want to see you. And God says, you can't see me directly, but I will show you a part of my glory. And then the Lord describes himself in some of the most powerful language of Scripture. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's merciful and gracious, he says. But that phrase, abounding or overflowing with steadfast love, is where I want to draw our attention because it 
it reflects, and it is reflected in James's words here, God doesn't just have a little bit of compassion. He doesn't just have a little bit of compassion. He seems to overflow with it for people like us. <laughs> That's what's so shocking about it. Again, back to the Old Testament. I mentioned the Exodus, immediately followed by grumbling. We see that rebellion, followed by repentance, thankfully, and God's compassion in response to it. People come out of, of Egypt. Those people die in the wilderness, but God does bring their children into the promised land. And what we find out is those children are, in fact, surprisingly like the Exodus generation. They, too, are complainers. They, too, are rebellious and turn away from the Lord after just a short time. Rebellion, repentance, and then God's compassion once again. And we see this through the whole Old Testament, the kingdom. God gives them a king. He draws them together, gives them rest all around. They rebel. But when they repent, he shows compassion to them again. Every time his people repent and return to him, God has more compassion for them. I think that's what we're supposed to, to understand by this language full of compassion, overflowing with steadfast love. God's people receive so much more compassion than they deserve. He is the father who welcomed back the son who had rebelled against him, the son who had dishonored him to his face. And he welcomes him back for nothing more than returning. <laughs> the son knew that. You remember Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. He says, I know my father. I bet he'd at least take me back as, as a servant if I could turn back to him. And the father does more than that. He kills the calf. They throw a party God welcomes that rebellious son back when he returns. His compassion is full, and we see it most clearly in Jesus himself. The Son of God came to give his life as a payment to stand in the way of the judgment that everyone has earned. All of us, in fact. If you're a Christian, you are a person who has sinned repeatedly. No ifs, ands, or buts. When we walk through that door, that's our confession together. We come as a fellowship first of sinners, rebels. And what's so amazing is that the judge who's standing at the door didn't pour out his condemnation at that moment. <laughs> when you walked through that door, when I walked through that door, when you sinned again in the same way, he proved that he's full of compassion by sending his son, and the son showed that compassion by willingly enduring the crucifixion. He knew it was coming. He had great anxiety about it. Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. He took our shame. He took our punishment. Because he's full of compassion. That's who he is, and he gives it freely to anyone who trusts in Jesus. That's what's so shocking about God's character. He's full of compassion. And so, if you are a Christian, know this. God is full of compassion. He has accepted you simply for trusting in Jesus. You are forgiven and loved. If you've entrusted yourself to him, 
and return to him with nothing in your hands, emptiness, sin, rebellion. He welcomes you once again because he's full of compassion. And if you, if you don't know, maybe you just don't know if you're a Christian or not. You've kind of hung around church for a while, but you're uncertain where you stand with God. This is an invitation that stands open today for you to come to Jesus, to accept him into your life. And the promise is you will be a child of God. You are accepted in love. His compassion is so full that he's willing to give you more. He cannot run out. That's who God is. That's his character. Those who know how much compassion they receive then should also show this compassion. And that's the application here. That's the connection between these sins of speech that we've talked about and God's compassion to us. Because God is full of compassion, James emphasizes the ongoing character of God's kindness to us. If you could advance that slide just once more. Those who know how much compassion they receive should also show this compassion. And I have that in the present tense there. Those who know how much compassion they receive, that is receive day by day in an ongoing fashion. Every day you wake up, you have God's compassion on you. He continues to give it to you, brother or sister. Those who know this then show that compassion in their language. And when we begin to grasp this compassion of God, it transforms us. I love how Aaron began the service with that, that uh, quote from Revelation 19. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're told that the bride has made herself ready. The bride represents all the church, all God's people. The bride has made herself ready. That is, we believers look at ourselves and we say, I want to be there with him, and so I want to be like him. And we, in fact, take these steps day by day to say, I want to put to death false ways of speaking, misleading speech. I want to put away my grumbling and complaining spirit. And instead, I want to put on compassion in the same way that I received it past tense and am receiving it right now. God is full of compassion, and he transforms us to be like him. I'm going to reverse our order here as we close. I want to give the benediction first, if you'll stand, and then I'll pray over us. I think Paul makes this connection really nicely for us in Ephesians chapter 4. God's compassion transforms us. Paul, writing from prison of all places. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help for these things. You are full of compassion. And yet we find in ourselves that we are tempted by hypocrisy. We know that you love the truth, and yet in our times of fear and anxiety, we try to protect ourselves and find a way out by our own sinful means. Guard us, Lord, and teach us to speak the truth. I pray that you would reassure us with the promise of your compassion so that we would 
commit ourselves to speaking the truth in every situation, and that you would teach us not to grumble, but to forbear, to show patience to each other, to our brothers and sisters, not to accuse them when we feel hurt, mistreated, forgotten, but instead teach us, Lord, to show the same compassion that you have, that you show to us day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, brothers and sisters. You're dismissed.